Welcome to The Parlor, featuring conversations with rhetoricians about rhetoric. I'm John Garcia, joined by my co-host, Christine Carranza. Hi, I'm very excited to be here today. In this episode, we're speaking with post-structuralist rhetorician and professor of rhetoric and writing, English and communication studies, as well as chair of the Department of Rhetoric and Writing, Diane Davis. It's both an honor and a privilege to speak with you. Welcome. Thank you. So we had a wonderful and very active discussion regarding your essay entitled Creaturely Rhetoric. We wanted to focus our interview on that specific article and really pick your brain on it. Our class went into a discussion about the ways in which you depict rhetoric as able to exist. What prompted you to study rhetoric in creatures so intently? And would you say it's harmful to define animal rhetoric at all? Oh, that's an interesting question. Harmful as in like a symbolic violence? Is that what you mean? Like restrictive towards the animal's uh-huh. like existence as a whole. I see. Like a human versus animal uh-huh. perspective. I see. Um, okay, so let's take the first part. Why? Why? Um, first of all, I, I like to operate right um, at the intersection of rhetorical theory and continental philosophy. And one of the things that I like to do, you named it, is post-structural rhetoric. It's a, the, uh, a process of deconstruction. So I like to take the things that we think and the way that we think and figure out what makes that possible. Okay. What are the conditions for thinking that, right? And um, so for me, one of the main borders that's drawn that allows us to talk about what is human and that allows most of the rhetorical tradition to talk about what rhetoric is, right, is this line, this apparent border that separates, quote unquote, the animal from the human. And I'm using that um, general singular on each side um, deliberately. But, and so that border seemed to me something um, that I wanted to uh, mess with, <laughs> um, just sort of inherently in myself. That, that's what uh, it drives me is the idea to, that we might deconstruct something that seems so fixed. Um, and what happens when you look at borders um, is they turn out to be um, limits. And the difference would be that a limit is something, you know, it touches. So a limit both joins what it it also separates. And that's what makes it interesting, right? It both joins and separates. So we can see some distinctions, but what what ends up lining up at a limit, um, what lines up at a limit, touches and separates there, um, tends to depend on the other. So we have differential relations there rather than any kind of opposition. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, I wanted to press that apparent border and demonstrate it's um, the way that it operates as a limit. So how do we understand the human? Well, we have to find things that are not human right that can't be the human and historically as you know a lot of violence is around that question who gets to be fully human for example um and so we could i mean most of our nastiest history is around that question um but in terms of what is the human we have tended to back it up against 
the animal, and by the animal, that general singular, we tend to mean like everything that's not human. We cram it in there, whether it's, you know, some um, tick you just found on the floor or a great ape, right? It's all the animal as if it all operates the same way. It's all the same, right? Um, so the animal, the human, or technology, right? So what is the human? Well, it's not technology. What is the human? Well, it's not the animal. And so that apparent border is something that I really wanted to push on um, early on. And it probably is, you mentioned this before um, when we were talking, uh, it, probably, it probably is because I, I had a great um, affection for animals early on, lots of them, all kinds of animals. And, um, and what I noticed at a very young age is how different they are, not just among different species, but um, among amongst within species so that this dog for example um, behaves and relates in very different ways than that one just like people right but also look if you have um, I mean the typical animals that people have at home are dogs and cats well look at the difference right but also look at the difference between the between two cats right and so then as I got to um, know a lot more species that question really started haunting me because you can't say the animal any less violently violently than you can say the human and be talking about everybody right so that was an interesting question to me that i wanted to pursue so that my very first article in fact my first publication was on this when i was a graduate student so um, i was working with it then and now i've forgotten the other part of your question that you helped to find for me um Oh, yes. Would you say... Oh, that it's harmful to define it. Yes. Would you say it's harmful to define animal rhetoric? Um, in the sense that we just talked about, in, in the sense of suggesting that every animal um, uh, relates and responds to the other and addresses the other in the exact same way, then yes. We have to be open to um, uh, a wild expansion of what we mean by rhetoric. Right. And right. that seems to me why it's important to keep the name. Because once you attach animal to rhetoric, wow, we're in a very different territory than, um, than traditional rhetorical studies has allowed. Right. Right. Stellar answers, by the way. Just, I'm, I'm floored. <laughs> Thank I'm you. Floored. Just <laughs> Good questions. Anthropomorphism is defined as having human characteristics which you claim some animals like dogs and dolphins exhibit. We talked about the usefulness of anthropomorphism specifically as a defining tool for human rhetoric. Our classmate Rebecca actually had some concerns over the dangers of this way to study rhetoric. The problem with anthropomorphism is that if we rely on it to define what humans are, like what separates humans from the rest of the animal world, then we're automatically gonna like go into human and assume that we're superior to all other living beings. And that's bad because it assumes that our priorities and our goals as humans are more valuable than the rest of like, the living world. Um, and that gets us into issues as we see like now with climate change things like that. You also mentioned there is a quote problem, unquote, with observing rhetoric solely by comparison with the rest of the animal world. Could you please elaborate? 
not exactly sure I follow the last part of that. So let me get the the um, the question about anthropomorphism first. So I agree with everything that your classmate said. Um, on the other hand, um, the charge of anthropomorphism has been precisely what has protected an anthropocentric approach to science and to other um, animal studies for um, decades. So, it, I mean, I think I said it in this article that the charge of anthropomorphism is like the er curse in science, and it means you're not getting published until very recently. Um, you know Jane Goodall's work, right? Well, it was the the on the, with apes, right, and bonobos. Oh yes. So her work was absolutely squelched when she wanted to to um, n use names for the different apes that she was watching. She was watching chimps. She named them rather than giving them numbers. Why did she want to do that? Because they clearly depicted different personalities. She wanted to give their singularity some kind of name. And, um, and she couldn't get her work published. Just from that, for that, that was anthropomorphism. Um, so the idea of anthropomorphism itself, first of all, presumes that we know what a human is already. What's a human trait? It's not really clear anymore, is it? Because all the things we used to say, that we have language and they don't, well, that's wrong. That we have tool use and they don't, well, that's wrong. That we have culture and they don't, that means um, passing knowledge from one generation to another, well, that's wrong. So we've discovered so much already that means, so let's say I, I, I wanted to talk about uh, some inanimate object, that cord or a rock, as if it had um, feelings and it communicated its feelings and it, it felt emotions and it had culture. So there would be nothing specifically anthropomorphic about that since many species have those capacities. It's not simply human to, pr to suggest that. Um, it might not be that a rock or a cord has those capacities, so something's going on there, but it's not necessarily anthropomorphism. What we've learned about animals has challenged everything about what we thought we knew about quote unquote the human, because again, what's happening at that limit where it both joins and separates so once, once we understand that, then even the question of anthropomorphism um, is complicated, right? It's not necessarily um, characteristics of the human that I'm ascribing to something else, right? Um, so so the, the challenge then is both not to pretend that no other species shares many of these capacities, and also not to project, simply project um, from the human onto something else, right? Anything else, any other being for sure, a a as if everyone is just like me. And that's true across human cultures as well. Right? One of the things in that piece I noticed that I talked about was the um, mirror recognition, that mirror recognition test. So. When scientists want to test for self-awareness and in order to have empathy, 
they believe you have to have self-awareness. So to test for self-awareness, they, they do that mirror self-recognition test where they, where they stick some sort of dot or something, some paint yes. or something on a, yeah. on a kid's forehead when the kid not knowing, and then put the kid in front of the mirror and see if the kid touches the mirror or his or her own forehead, right? And if they touch their own forehead where that dot is, it shows that they, they thought, it showed that they, the kid knows this is me. It's not that thing over there, the mirror, it's me, this is me. Um, well, first of all, they realized that human kids are not the only ones that do that right and that was that blew them away right so we learned something there but second of all we we learned that later that not all human kids do that at a certain age in fact the normal age was presumed to be about two and then they realized in different cultures where there's not the same relation to visual visuality and the ocular kids don't do that as early they they're much older before they will, will actually look in a mirror and think this is me or demonstrate that this is me it's not because they don't have empathy or self-awareness they don't have the same relation to vision right so what you're really testing for in that um in that test is you know ability to understand reflection that's something else right that's very right. different but we do know that manta rays, magpies, whales, dolphins, elephants, and, and all the great apes, at the very least, demonstrate that sort of ability to understand reflection, right? So, we, it, so that very test sort of exploded everything, everything that we thought we knew, even about each other, right? because of the East and West divide. Limit. <laughs> Here's something a bit philosophical, okay. but it's something prompted from our discussion that we feel should be asked nonetheless. Okay. Who are we as a people? And how do and should we talk about ourselves, specifically relating to the grand scheme of the animal kingdom and our place in it? Hmm. Well, that's a huge question. It's a, it's a thinker. Um, how should we talk about ourselves? Well, I can... Uh, uh, one of the struggles that a lot of people are having right now in the field um, and in related fields is how to talk about something, a perspective that is not stuck in anthropocentrism or in hu human exceptionalism is really what we're talking about here, where the human is the center of everything and the standard. How do, how do we talk about that? Well, a lot of people use the term post-human, uh, a post-human perspective. I'm not crazy about that for a number of reasons, but the term that I have sort of gravitated to is anahuman. And an anahuman perspective is one that envisions humans as part of the animal kingdom, right, so to speak. So not separate or, and distinct and not exceptional either in any way, though different, right, with a differential relation to all the other species, just like they have a differential relation to each other. So Anna human sort of sees it all, all as a piece, right? So 
Whereas, I don't know if you've seen the chain of being. The great chain of being was supposed to suggest that, you know, there are the the lower creatures and, and then it gradually goes up the chain to gods at the top and then humans, right? And right. so the idea is that there's this vertical scale of significance, um, so um, an inferiority and superiority in terms of levels of being, and I would flatten that and suggest that we have not um, increasing in scale on a vertical scale, but, um, but a relation that is differential. That just means wildly different, and, and I'm talking not only about between various animal cultures and human cultures, but among human cultures and animal cultures, like lots of species, right? There are lots of species and they behave very differently. And there are lots of human cultures and we behave very differently. And we relate and respond to each other very differently. And so I would sort of flatten that scale, not to say, you know, that um, human... completely get rid of the verticalness? Well, I mean, among human beings, our own survival is going to end up um, increasing, I mean, more important than, say, an ant's survival, mm. right? It's and just as an ant's survival would um, be more important to an ant, right? That's kind of the way things work, but um, so, so it doesn't mean that among different cultures or different peoples and different animals that there aren't hierarchies. They operate, right? But in terms of, um, if we're speaking ontologically, um, then we're talking about um, a, a, what kind of web of life that um, we are in. So it's not us over here versus nature. We're in it, which means that nature is something we didn't think it was. Right. right? It's much more complicated. It involves culture. It involves all kinds of languages, and so our language is one language among many kinds of languages, not all alphabetical, right? And so uh, the idea of, of an anti-human perspective suggests that we're all in the mix, and we don't, we don't have an exceptional point of view. We have a point of view that's necessarily in the middle of what we're looking at, right, and we're responding to. Does that help? Yeah. So you're saying it's better just to make connections rather than scale everything at once, like to place ourselves on that hierarchy of what we are as a human. I think right. So it's the it's human exceptionalism that we have to challenge. Um, because if you look at anything, even a slime mold, you're going to be shocked by the way that it can do what it does. Um, and it, you know, if they if a slime mold had some sort of consciousness, one would imagine that it would think it was exceptional, right? Um, we do things differently. We have different levels of technology. We um, we are different, but not opposite, right? And so, um, different uh, environments, different evolutionary time periods um, have created a lot of diversity. Right. But I, I do want to say that one of the things I like about this notion of the anahuman and where we're all kind of thrown in there is that it also spotlights the fact that we're 
were, re- were related and in relation and not self-sufficient. Um, so we may, as a species, think our survival is more important than an ant's, but let's talk about whether it's more important than a bee. And when I put it like that, it seems obvious, but what happens? What's going to happen to us if we don't take care of those bees? Nothing nice. What if we don't take care of the planet? Our planet that we're in, not, we're not over here saying, well, that's the planet. You know, what can we do about it? It's us, right. right? It's us. And so if we don't take care of our habitat, what's going to happen to us? Right. right. So this the this um, idea of a of an intrarelational existence is very important to me. I like the idea that once we acknowledge that we are part of this giant home that is Earth, we can start to possibly accept the blame for where we are at this point regarding climate change. So it's it's pretty interesting that this discussion on animal rhetoric ties into a larger scope in terms of what's the bigger picture. Yeah. So. Yeah, for me that's very much the case, yeah. To add on to that, humanity has this selfish need to be in control of the narrative and thus assign voices where none exist. They tend to anyway. And so you mentioned in the article, we shouldn't do that for animals, but we'd love to discuss whether it's tied to morals, ethics, both, or something else entirely that can motivate your reasoning uh, behind that, and why. So if I understand, um, let me say that the George Kennedy um, used octopi as one of the um, animals that he talked about, and he, and he, there's a, a great quote in there about, um, you know, they spit ink, right, they, um, and um, in particular situations, and he called that a kind of primordial rhetoric. Um, and the, but color, the, the, the changing of colors, um, he also discusses, and the reason we would call that rhetorical is because they don't do that except in response to something. They do it, even if it's about trying to avoid predation, they're trying to, um, they're using the symbols of themselves, right? Sometimes colors um, and sometimes spitting something to um, to negotiate um, some kind of provocation, right? And so already it's rhetorical, address and response. They don't have to use alphabetic language or any sort, or, and we don't have to understand what they're trying to say there to understand that we're witnessing some sort of rhetorical engagement if, we wanna, if we're gonna define rhetoric very broadly. So I, so I think we can say that much, right? That there's a, an address and response happening there. Um, but right, like that's about as far as we can go. Right. Um, though oc- an octopus is incredibly intelligent, that must we've learned, and they have, um, according to the most recent research, they have a lot going on in terms of communicative capacities. So. What they're chatting about, we don't know, right? But the research that's recent and contemporary has taught us an awful lot about what we don't know, that there's a lot more happening than we could possibly 
understand at this point. But the research on groundhogs and their language is fascinating and intricate. Groundhogs um, apparently chat about us, right? They have different warning calls for different species, and there's one for humans, and there's one for wolves and coyotes. But when it's a human, they will emit a different call if the human has a weapon, and a different call if it's a gun or a knife, and a different call if the person's wearing a green shirt or a blue shirt. That is so interesting. And a different call if it's male or female. And check this out, if they're wide or thin. So there are a lot of adjectives, what we would call adjectives in their in their warning calls, right? So they're chatting about a lot of things there according to this this research. So I mean there's a grammar going on. Right. Um, so we can know that much be, through rigorous testing that 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 um, someone did for a lot of years, <laughs> right? Um, but but we don't want to presume to know more than we can know, right? right. And um, oh, uh, in fact, about anybody, <laughs> but but right about about animals as well, and or any particular species. And I and and I and I do think that's an, for me, it's an ethical question, right? Because um, I find it really offensive when people, and we do it all the time, talk about the animal. In the same way, I find it offensive when we talk about the human because it's it it, it for me is an epistemological violence. It's um, it presumes a sameness, and of course, the sameness is always the one I think is there. Right? If I'm saying it, um, that I think is dangerous, um, and in particular, I think it I find it when we lose the differential relations among various species and within various species, we tend to end up with that kind of violence that we've seen in history, right? Is this person fully human? That's wild, isn't it? We're it, perceiving it really them. is. They're perceiving Yes. <laughs> and gossiping about our weight, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> So, uh, Professor Longacre actually told us that you have a dog that you love very oh. dearly. Um, we figured this topic hits home for you and <laughs> pertains to the discussion directly. In class, uh, John brought up the discussion of whether emotional support dogs are a good example of animals performing rhetoric, given that we teach these animals how to act by training them. Rebecca had read an article and mentioned um, something about animal behavior that says what we think are emotional responses are actually the dog doing something for a reward instead. For example, a dog waiting at the door for you to come home is not because they're excited to see you, rather they are expecting a walk or a treat, etc. What does this mean to you and would you depict an emotional support animal as a retort? <laughs> um, one of the reasons I do this work is because I'm so interested in what kind of rhetorical beings are here and share this world with us. Um, so I would, in fact, say that that's a rhetorical being. Um, but and I'll come back to that. Um, I have two dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I have never not had animals. Mm-hmm. So big ones, little ones. So yes, 
as I revealed in the beginning, um, I've always had a real affection for animals. They, we communicate in a way that, um, since I was a little kid, that has intrigued me because it's not with words, right? Um, so yes, Mark's absolutely right, and he knows that because I spread my pictures of my dogs all over Facebook and anywhere else I can, Twitter, anywhere. Um, so the emotional support dog, isn't that interesting that there is such a, think about the name of that. Well, how can they emotionally support you? Because they respond to you in a way that requires from you um, very little. Right? They can respond well enough to interpret your mood. And they respond to that in kind. So if you're agitated and they know you need to calm, they know you need to calm down. That's amazing right there. But then what they do is they comfort you, right? So all kinds of rhetoric going on right there, right? Of course, they're rhetorical beings, right? Um, now, about the, the research that would say that it, it, this is all, it's self-serving when we think they're feeling emotion. Um, well, there's so much research now that would suggest that's just old, an old thought. Don't forget um, that um, historically humans have been able to do some just god-awful things to animals because of um, a perception that animals either can't think or they're um, they're not sophisticated enough to to feel to well they feel and they have pain receptors that was always evident but the the idea was that they didn't have sophisticated enough intelligence feedback loops to suffer because of that pain and therefore they would just operate on them while they were awake um, and ignore their screams because they didn't think they convinced themselves that it wasn't, there was no suffering going on in those blood-curdling screams. So, again, the idea that, that that whole idea was being protected by the cover of anthropomorphism. Suffering is something humans do, right? Um, emotions are something humans have. Those animals are numbers, don't name them, that kind of thing, right? But we are animals, and we have emotions, and we suffer. And that doesn't mean they're exactly the same as animals, but one would have to start there. And when they look like they hurt, chances are good, they hurt, mm -hmm. right? And when that amazing pair, this elephant and this dog, had bonded, and when the dog got sick, the elephant stood at the fence where the dog was in the house for two weeks wouldn't leave go eat anything stood there but until the dog came back well what's going on there can can we really say with confidence that there is no emotional connection going on there how do we have emotional response dogs 
if they're not connected and un don't, if they don't understand emotions, how could they possibly calm you down, right? Um, just one story after another from primatologists, ethologists, all kinds of scientists, but also just anyone in a home, right, with an animal companion, um, describe, describe situations where one would have to actively resist the sense that there were emotions there. When I had two dogs and one died, the other one, I couldn't get to eat or walk or move for weeks wanted instead to just lay on this little t-shirt that we had on the other dog for the smell i guess um so what is that there was they were getting nothing for that right so books and books and books have been written on this on different animal emotions right so i would say i'm not i just can't i can't buy that mm -hmm. it's it it feels like ver a very old approach mm -hmm. yeah as a side question would you consider all animals could be emotional support animals or very specifically perhaps just dogs, maybe certain cats? Well, um, if we're talking about emotional support animals for humans, then that's going to be kind of specific, right? Because dogs have a long um, relation with us, like um, thousands and thousands of years relations with humans and that has made um we so we've kind of co-evolved they can read our expressions in ways that well cats might be able to but they don't care to right and um there are um other animals that we don't have nearly that historical evolution with so for us maybe not um but there they, you know then you always read things about there's that 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 um uh, rooster named Frog that's on the internet and has bonded with this child and runs down to the to the bus stop every day to meet the child and is in fact operates as a, a kind of emotional support of it. So I mean again it's also we might talk about species but there are also singular beings in these species who I mean you know not all people can act as support people. Some people are better at it than others and so um, it's not a line that's easily drawn. I mean, I, I would think that dogs are better at it for us than others, but you see all kinds of very strange bonds across species, right, where that's not supposed to happen. And they do support each other. And so well, I don't know why that happens or how, but it does seem to happen. But that doesn't mean that they could be supportive of you, mm -hmm. right? So um, it's all, there are a lot of moving parts there. I believe we're out of questions, but this has been riveting nonetheless. Would you care to add anything, perhaps a witty remark, just something to leave the podcast with? I wish I could think of a joke about Mark, but I, I can't. So um, I will say this, just on my way here today, I heard um, a, a story about uh, research on ants, and they realized that a particular species of ant uses the heads of another species of ants that they've killed as decorations in their, like, home. <laughs> Is that not bizarre? <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's all I got for you. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, this'll, I believe this will be the most memorable of all of the episodes. <laughs>
All right. So uh, once again, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. We know you're incredibly busy. Uh, so this truly means a lot to us and everyone else who will get to listen at some point. But um, that's, that's a wrap. wrap. This episode of The Parlor was produced by our third group partner, Brandy Corona, with the assistance and expert guidance of William Burdett, coordinator, and Casey Boyle, director of the Digital Writing and Research Lab. Technological support and equipment for recording and editing today's audio was also provided by the DWRL. This episode features the voices of Diane Davis, myself, John Garcia, and Christine Carranza. The music for this podcast was sampled from the track titled Airtone by Common Ground, which can be found at ccmixture.org slash files slash airtone slash 58703. We've adapted and used this music under the attribution non-commercial 3.0 Creative Commons license. Other sounds featured in this production were taken from conversation.wave by Wolf RFE and downloaded from presound.org. These have been adapted and used under Creative Commons 1.0 Public Domain Universal License. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect anyone other than the featured speaker.